Welcome to the Dystonia Matters podcast, brought to you by Dystonia UK. I'm Dana Ferdinandi from Dystonia UK. On this episode of the Dystonia Matters podcast, we chat with Neil, Julie and Sylvia, three amazing parents who share their stories with incredible honesty. They talk us through the highs and lows of caring for a child and young person with dystonia and about navigating the journey alongside them. This podcast is a little bit longer than our usual episodes, so when you hear the music start to play, feel free to press pause, grab yourself a cuppa and come back when you're ready. Let's get straight to it. Welcome today, guys. Thank you. Thank you so much for for being with us. I'm just going to ask you guys to introduce yourselves um, to our listeners. So, Neil, shall we start with you if you'd like to introduce yourself? Sure. Um, My name is Neil Trevathan. I'm the parent carer of a young man called Callum who has uh, additional needs, um, aka Down syndrome. And then who mid-2020 was diagnosed with cervical dystonia. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Sylvia, would you like to go next? I'm Sylvia Vincent. I'm the mother of Tegan, who's now 19. And Tegan has um, cerebral palsy and dystonia. Fantastic. Julie, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah. Hi, I'm Julie. Um, I'm parent and and carer to, to Katie. Um, Katie was born very early and has always had other disabilities before the dystonia started. So, um, yep, been looking after her for a very long time. Her dystonia started at 16. So if we start off with uh, Julie, because Katie, for those that have been listening, has done a podcast for us, uh, our first one, in fact. How do you manage being the the parent carer of of a child with dystonia? Um, Well, actually, initially, it was a big shock for us. We were used to dealing, Katie has a a learning disability and epilepsy, um, and we were used to dealing with her other conditions. And when she had her teenage years, she started dislocating, and we were aware that her body was going through quite a lot of trauma in a very quick period of time, and that they think that's what triggered her dystonia. That's what we've been told. Um, that it's been caused by trauma and it was really hard initially we found it quite sad and as a family we were all really sad for her because she had although she had her own challenges she really had like a little mapped out journey of her own life what she wanted to achieve Um, and she was a member of the British Para swimming team um, and she had to stop swimming so for her her life from from her perspective well it was over well that's all that were they, they were her friends she struggled in school she didn't have friends she wasn't easily accepted by many, many people, even though she's such a likable girl. <laughs> um, she, she has her own challenges and people always would tell me that she's a very challenging child. <laughs> so <laughs> that was quite difficult. But we do feel that for Katie, being a challenging child, always arguing with the system, not wanting to do quite what everyone else expected of her, um, having her own ideas and views on the world, gave her the strength to be able to deal with having the dystonia. We do believe that struggling through her childhood gave her that those building blocks to be able to cope with the next thing that happened, her next big challenge, uh, which dystonia has been for her. It's tough, isn't it? Because, I mean, we, we've spent a lot of time talking to Katie, um, not just for the, for the podcast, but, but over the years. And I, I love her outlook on life. And I love the fact that she challenges <laughs> people but I don't think that's a bad thing I think that can be really difficult when you are younger and you are of that mindset though Sylvia did you find that with Tegan or um I think the story is different because Tegan had been cerebral palsy from from birth with stiffness and she has quadriplegic cerebral palsy she's stiff all over I didn't really know the difference I didn't know that she was having two things happening once so I didn't really understand you know that um that one outweighed the other at times all I kept having conversations with doctors was about is how changeable her cerebral palsy is I'd say you know some days she was stiffer than others other days you know she was more retracted she was more 
tighter. Um, it kept going from one way to the other. And that's when they said, oh, you know, well, she's got dystonic tendencies and it isn't just the CP, it's a combination of, you know. Um, when, when it really came about to be more apparent was when um, she was having real issues with her right side, stiffness and the jerkiness and um, um, almost like ticks, constant movement that she couldn't control. Um, and difficulty with her right hand after starting um, riding. Horse riding was a thing she really wanted to get to get to grips with her grip, kind of. And um, her shoulder, everything was really play, playing up really badly and became so painful for movement. So um, we opted for, um, after lots of discussion, Botox. And that's when the dystonia got, got bad, to be honest. It was after having the Botox treatment in the shoulder um, everything became much, much more difficult for her for a period of time. It was like a lot of relearning and um, getting to know her body in a different kind of way. And that's when it kind of stood out a lot. So her practical use um, deteriorate, deteriorated um, and it took a, a long time to learn, relearn and work things back again. And by then the movement was different. So, you know, everything had become more different and the dystonia and the CP it was evident what the differences were. So you could tell at that later stage, you could tell if it was something that her CP was causing or if it was something that yes, was causing. Yes, it got more and more apparent the more she grew. Okay. Mm. And what age was she at that point that you really started to notice the differences? Probably about five. Okay, so yeah. quite young still. Yeah, about five. She started riding at four. Oh wow! And it was really, really from a young age. I could see a difference in, you know, two things. Okay, and Neil, your story is again different to 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 Sylvia's and to Julie's. Well, yeah, I mean, Callum is um, Callum was thirty um, when he was diagnosed, or should I say, when I diagnosed him, because the medical fraternity had absolutely no clue what was going on, and I say that with a heavy heart because our daughter is a doctor. But he'd not, he'd obviously been suffering because of lockdown, you know, his, his requirements, like lots of young people with additional needs, is, is around consistency and predictability of his life. And so not being able to go to the cinema every Wednesday afternoon or bowling every Tuesday morning or whatever it was, was very difficult for him to comprehend. And then he ended up one night complaining of a stiff neck and then um, an increasingly bad headache and that progressed over two or three days to the point where we ended up getting an ambulance for him because we were really concerned about what was going on. I mean, he was just inconsolable and, and crying consistently and just saying, Dad, please help me, Dad, please help me, which when you can't is the most disturbing, disturbing thing. And a week in hospital during which time he had a whole host of tests and scans and they were concerned whether he had a tumour or whether he had a bleed on the brain. Thankfully, all of those things were excluded. So after six days, they told me that it was muscular, skeletal, and it would ease with time, to which I went, that's absolute nonsense. Nobody holds their head in this position and is in this much pain because they pulled a little muscle in the neck. We've all had that when we've woken up you know, having slept strangely, which makes no sense. Anyway, I was patted on the head and we brought him home. And then I contacted Marie Helene at the Parkside Hospital. Couldn't really get hold of her because she was all in lockdown. I begged the receptionist to give me her email address, which she did, bless her heart. And then Marie Helene responded saying, I can't see Callum, apart from the fact it's 300 miles away. But if you contact Tim Harrower, who's a neurologist at Exeter, I think he might be able to help. I did that. Callum couldn't travel. Um, he couldn't move. Tim jumped in the car. This has all appeared in, in dystonia matters now, isn't it? So I'm probably boring people. But amazingly drove a 100, 200 mile round trip, saw Callum, diagnosed cervical dystonia in about 30 seconds, told me that the reason that people had no clue at Trillisk Hospital, our local hospital, was that nobody ever covers it in medical school, mm. which I found amazing. And my daughter confirmed that, she's a doctor. And he had some Botox there and then, he brought some Botox with him. He only gave him a little bit, but within a day, the improvement was miraculous. 
And um, long story short, he's been on Botox every 12 weeks since last July. And it's helped. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting that he, he went four weeks ago and, and I, I said, I think he's a lot better. And Tim Harrow said he's the best I've seen him. Um, sounds like he's talking as if Callum wasn't there. Um, he said to Callum, Callum, you're looking great. The best I've ever seen you. And I said, do you think we should dial down the dose a little bit? And he said, to be honest, you could even get away with not giving him any today. And I said, no, I think that's too big a step. So he's now on 50% of what he had up until four weeks ago. And it continues to keep him stable. He's not right. His neck position still isn't right. And on occasions, he'll still have the tics where he, he rubs his head, which effectively helps remove some of the stiffness. But it is, you know, we could not have coped without discovering the Botox. Nor could Callum. I mean, he was inconsolable um, when he was unwell. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's helped. Have you found, you mentioned then that, that Tim spoke directly to Callum. Have you found that lots of um, people don't speak directly to Callum and speak to you or through you? It depends. The, um, the good professionals speak to Callum and also, if they're going to ask me a question, would say, Callum, do you mind if I ask Dad about X, Y, and Z? And Callum will go, yeah, sure. It's, I think, you know, my daughter says that she works, she's working in the Nightingale Hospital in Exeter, and they've obviously had a tough few months and some very sad events. And she said that she volunteers to talk to families about the potential threats to their loved ones because she finds that lots of doctors don't have enough emotional intelligence to do it. And I think that's probably indicative of the population as a whole. So, you know, um, Julie and Sylvia will know that the best people to talk with their children are those that exhibit the most emotional intelligence and can connect with them. And that some people can, some people can't. Yeah. Julie, Sylvia, you're both, uh, if you wanted, feel free always to just jump in. But I've seen uh, you're both nodding there. Is that true for you guys as well, that that people often speak to you rather than to either Megan yeah. or Katie? Most definitely, most definitely. I find that, yeah, it's almost sometimes like to you, what in the past I would say recently isn't so bad, but it, it's almost like they don't exist, like she doesn't exist. People will talk to me and... I would stop the sentence. I'd stop them where they are and say, you know, Tegan, there she is. <laughs> there yeah. she is. You know, talk to her directly. She does She does have, a, a, you know, a conscious response. Or if they're asking opinions, sometimes I'll speak directly to Tegan and then come to me for the response. You know, well, what does mum think about that? You know, in, in a kind of, uh, I don't know, patronising kind of way. Yeah, when, when Katie was first diagnosed um, with the dystonia, it was hard for her to understand. We had to try and educate Katie as well, what's happening to her, to, so she could understand what's happening to her own body. But we did, well, she was only 16 anyway at the time, but we did find that they were talking to us as parents, not directly to Katie. Some doctors were better than others. We had a, we had a doctor who was very kind. She, you know, she did talk directly to Katie. And then ask us the question, like Neil said, that they'd say, "Is it okay if we speak to Mum?" Mm -hmm. And ask and let Katie know what it is they're going to ask us about, so Katie can have her input on it too. And I'm always careful that when I do speak for Katie or you know next to her, I always say to Katie, "If I'm getting this wrong, Katie, if I'm not putting this across how you want it to be put across, please say, um, so that she can have a say." But we have found that more recently, as she's get she's older, she her confidence has grown with her own abilities. And she is now able to say to somebody, you know, I'm over here, speak to me, um, <laughs> which is great. Uh, she will now say to somebody, actually, you want to be speaking to me? Um, and actually, I, I, when we go into a room now, we go into a doctor's, I usually have a chair by the doctor and a chair over by the door. And Katie used to always sit herself by the door. Um, she didn't <laughs> want to be in with the doctors. She didn't want to talk to them. But now, actually, I just push her through <laughs> and make her sit on the chair next to the doctor. And I'll go and sit on the sit, you know, by the door. Because actually it's Katie that needs to be spoken to. Um, I usually sit and take notes so I can try and remember what's being said. What are we supposed to be doing next? But yeah, it's, it's, it's improving um, as Katie's getting older and more confident. 
I was just going to say there is an opposite side to it as well. You know, when, when we did um, Deegan's PIP, the last PIP application, mm-hmm. and because um, I said, you know, she's, she's, you know, quite intelligent, she can talk for herself and all the rest of it on the form. Um, when it came to doing the application, um, I was like dying to speak because she wasn't, giving, you know, she was telling him all the best things, you know, how, how lovely everything is. Um, <laughs> and I, and I, I was trying to speak <laughs> and it's like, no. No, 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 you cannot speak. Tegan's 16 now. She's 16 now. She can speak for herself. You know, the upshot is she never got a benefit, you know, because she just didn't tell them anything as far as I was concerned. And they just thought, oh, she could get up and stand up and sit down again. So she's quite able, you know. It's, so it, it does swing and roundabouts. I think circumstances, sometimes our voices need to need to be heard. Hmm. So... It's difficult, isn't it? Because I would imagine mm. that for, for you guys, it's when do you step in mm. and say, actually, you know, it, it's we need to speak for our loved one. But I would guess it's when they're not even seen, as yeah. it were, like literally they're sat there with you in the room and they're, and I don't think this is just the medical professional, by the way. I think mm. from, from what we hear from supporters, this is out, in the world as well how does that make you feel when somebody just talks to you and almost ignores this this human being that sat next to next to you i think it's um amanda and i think it's a really really useful way of deciding whether people are proper people as we call them or whether they're not so the way people interact with callum from the off from the first time they meet him, tells us an amazingly, gives us an amazingly insightful view of what they are like as human beings. Sometimes there's an exception because people could be a bit shy or a bit awkward, but most of the time, somebody with the emotional intelligence and care and ability to evaluate the situation and meet somebody new and make a judgment about how they should interact with them all of which are really precious skills, not usually exhibited, for example, by politicians, Um, all of those things make you a better human being in our book. So one of the great examples, I don't know if any of you watch Strictly Come Dancing, but um, Amanda's a super fan. Two years ago, I met Natalie Lowe in an elevator in a hotel in London, which is one of the most exciting moments of my life, I have to say. <laughs> and, and, and I persuaded her in 10 minutes that she should give me her email address because I wanted to organise some surprise dance lessons for my wife, which oh. I did in turn to the point where Natalie came down to our house and she'd heard about Callum and the fact that he was a Strictly fan. She walked into the house. We'd never met her before. We said hello. She said, First things first, where's Callum? Oh. She walked in. Callum was, he's got his own dance floor because he loves to dance. Um, within 45 seconds, she was dancing with Callum on his own dance floor to his own music. And that from basically an international dancing superstar. That tells me everything I needed to know about that individual. Um, and she didn't do it in a patronizing way. She didn't do it in a I feel sorry for you way. She did it in a, this is what I want to do way. So, mm-hmm. yeah, for me, I think it's, um, I don't know about the other guys, but I think it gives a great indication of the nature of a human being in terms of how they deal with, you know, children like ours. Oh, give me chills. It, it's so, that should be normal, shouldn't it? And yeah. it, it's really sad that that's not necessarily how people interact with somebody with dystonia and and other disabilities that are visual um have julie sylvie have you had instances either a good or a negative where that kind of thing has happened for you um i think generally um i would say the where i see the most differences or see see different approaches is is when we're out and about just going out and about to shops and going you know we're, we're going out today or we're going to um, anywhere for a nice walk, things like that. Um, and I think that um, what makes it difficult is um, more about what people don't say for me. I feel I find it easier sometimes when people are a little bit 
um, say the wrong thing because I can I can confront that. And Tegan's pretty vocal; she'll, she'll or she'll smile and think, "Well, you're the person with the issue and not me," you know. And they feel awkward <laughs> from her from her response because she responds in that kind of way. So what we find hard is when we go to places like a drive-through coffee or um, and she and the responses you get when you want support. So if you know she'll she will say to them, "Oh, I'd order something, but could you bring it, please? Because I can't collect it." Why can't you? You know, is is those kinds of questions that having to explain yourself in this world, especially in lockdown, where nobody's everything you order or do is through a window. Um, is I've just seen it so much more recently through those kind of connections. Um, you know, in on, on another stance, um, I'll just say one of the things that Tegan talks about a lot is children, children's responses. Um, she says reflects the person that they're being grown up by. And um, she talks a lot about that. Um, children who are restricted, who are curious, who want to ask the question and parents are, are constantly, um, you know, well, don't, you're staring and don't look at her like that. And blah, 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 that could be quite negative and reinforces them becoming people who will not approach and be forthright in, you know, um, understanding who people are. But she says, you know, people, most people with disabilities rather people question than stare and mimic and be mean. So there's, there's that side of it. She feels that people are parented the wrong way a lot of the time, which ends up with um, adults who just are, just don't understand. Judy, what's what's yours and, and Katie's experience been? Uh, we've had good and we've had bad. Um, it's been quite a mixed, you know, it, like Katie can still be quite childlike. So if we go go out to the park, for instance, Katie will still want to go on the swings. Um, she she she's like I'm out there, and obviously sometimes, not often, but sometimes you'll get other people saying she's too big to be on the swing. She shouldn't be over there. But we are finding now that people are more. I think people know Katie, <laughs> so and they they do understand that actually, as Katie was, she won't say to somebody, I've got a learning disability. She'll just say, I like the swings. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and why shouldn't I? Just because I'm an adult, what, why does that mean I can't play on the swings? Um, which I think is lovely. That, that's how much her confidence is now growing, that she will actually just say, this is what I enjoy doing, and this is why, like, why I'm doing it. But equally, we've had times where, when Katie's dystonia is at its worst, when she's still waiting for her Botox and time's running out, as we put it, because they're the really worst times. She's been in a GP's office needing to top up for pain relief because her pain relief is just not enough. And she's in full spasm and it, and it pulls the whole shoulder out of the socket and it's just being thrashed around. And the GP would look at her and, and I, I think he would just say it in jest, but he would say, can you just stop doing that? Because it's making me feel sick. Um, oh, my Lord. Wow. But I think it was meant to be in jest because he had, a, you know, he wasn't, a, he wasn't a cruel man, but Katie's very literal. Um, so she would come out and she'd be like, oh, yeah, no, I don't think he likes me. She, she didn't know how to respond to that. Uh, and neither did I. We both, we both just sort of sat quietly, took the prescription and left because we just didn't know how to. I just said to Katie that I think he meant it in jest because he maybe didn't know how to cope with how your body presents at, at its worst. He probably isn't used to seeing people whose joints are being forcibly dislocated. And so it's hard for him, too. So I do like Katie to understand that sometimes people might react not because they're bad people, but because they just don't understand. But he, mm. and, and you know what? He is, he, he's retired now, but he was a good GP. He was a mm -hmm. kind GP. He, he would use, he, you know, he was one of those GPs you could ring and he say, come on in. He wouldn't say, oh, you're wasting my time. That's why I said to Katie, I think he didn't know how to respond. And people don't always realise what they say and how that lands with someone either so um if you're not reading that room correctly i think people on the flip side of that are often very worried about offending somebody who has a disability or who has dystonia and therefore ends up not saying anything for fear of actually saying the wrong thing and i think you know sylvia like you said which is which is something tegan talks about People asking questions, there's never a problem if you're polite and you're respectful. Asking questions about something that you don't understand can only be a good thing and it's how we grow awareness. But I think what's coming clearly from all three of you is that's not really what happens. People are reacting in sort of one or two ways, either positively or negatively, but not, not really trying to understand because a disability doesn't make you other. It just means that you might have 
different challenges to people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think sometimes it's it's so challenging that people just don't know how to respond. Um, I mean, if you can imagine trying to have a conversation with a young girl um, about pain relief and you're looking at her and she's on her knee, she is crying and both her arms are being forcibly dislocated and they're being thrashed in and out of its socket. What do you say when you know there's nothing actually that can help? I'm there as a parent because I don't know what else to do. You know, please help her. I don't want to go to A&E with her. Certain medications make her really, really sick. So she'll be vomiting on top of all that pain. Um, so it's it's very challenging. But I think some doctors, um, nurses and professionals, they just genuinely don't know how to help. So, so they're at a loss of what to say. And how do you guys, I mean, we've spoken a lot about about Callum and, and Katie and, and Tegan, but one of the things I wanted to get into a little bit on, on this episode is how their disability affects the family and, and the things that you guys maybe do or don't do or feel or don't feel. Because a lot of the time when we're talking about someone with dystonia, we're talking about the dystonia as if it only affects the person that physically has it. And that's not true. It actually affects the whole family but often that wider network is not forgotten, but certainly less focused on because the carers are very focused on caring for the person. How do you guys make sure that you have enough energy and you have uh, you have enough in you to be able to do that, but still practice self-care? Is, is that hard? Do you feel guilty? Let's talk a little bit about, about that. Mm. <laughs> Neil I'm gonna look at you because you're sorry for Mm. anyone listening we are recording you're looking like it hasn't occurred to you before well I I was gonna say and and I bet that Julia and Sylvia will say the same you know you somebody said something about well how do you cope and and, uh, so I think it's a well-worn response which is I didn't have a choice Mm. so you just do and whilst I didn't want this condition to be a further complication to Callum's already fairly deep-seated challenges, as the other guys wouldn't have done, it happened and we had to manage it. And and we have been, all three of us have been managing it since the day they were born. So actually, I don't know, it just, for me, it, it, it sounds a bit weird, but it just is quite natural. It's kind of what we do. And I, thankfully, we've never been you know, one of those families that, you know, said, why us or whatever, you, you can't do that. You have to get on. These people, these young people rely on you. And, you know, like I said, you you, you didn't have a choice. So you, you manage it. So for me, it hasn't, you know, when he was very poorly and before he was diagnosed and he was crying, and, you know, as, as Katie has been in, in because she's been in so much pain, that was horrific. Mm. That was punishing. But once we got through that and got some stability, it just becomes part of the course of what we do, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. I tell you, you know, you, you asking the question was kind of a big, I kind of had this big ring because I think, well, I don't know any different. That <laughs> um, is my, it is my, my day-to-day, it's my day-to-day life. And without thinking about it, you do, and it just becomes, you know, just like your everyday thing. It's part of your, it's part of your routine. It's part of whatever you've got to do in, in, in your daily life, you know. So I don't really even think about it, you know. Like I've already said, when Tegan has her difficult times when she can't get out of bed or her right side is just so spasmy or she's got no control of her arm or she has a, her times, it, the day may be slightly different. Three or four days may be slightly different. You know, your work pattern changes, your life pattern changes, and then you just work around it and get on with it there's no thought process of how it's affecting anything else because you just seem to manage everything else works around around your child yeah our our family kind of works um we're a team Uh, there's six of us here and we just all support each other Uh, we have to because actually we have more than one we only have one child with dystonia thankfully but our other children do have other conditions ellis dan lost funds through my family and we have other conditions we have to meet the challenges for each child. And actually, we, you know, if Katie needs something and I'm not here, well, one of the, her siblings or her dad, there's always somebody that can step in and we kind of can read each other. So well, Katie's easy to read. Uh, she's either on the floor or she or she'd be sitting up chatting. 
Um, so she's she really is quite easy to read, but you can tell when she's slipping and she's getting tired, especially by the afternoon. She gets very tired by the afternoon. Her family, you know, one of them will step up. One of them will say, oh, Katie, you know, she's trying to do a college work and she finds that very challenging. It's very difficult. She's trying desperately to get some qualifications so that she can get a job, um, just like everybody else would. No, no differently to somebody without a disability. She wants to work and have a life. But she does have some learning challenges. But they'll step up and they'll sit on the computer and they'll type for her or they'll use the dragon for her because actually she's down and that work's got to be in tomorrow. She can't do it. So it's a team of us getting her qualifications. <laughs> but all that really matters is she's going to get a certificate. She's going to feel like she's achieved something. Whether or not she's going to be well enough to work, I can't see that for, for the close future anyway. But she still then finished that part of her life with qualifications and certificates like the other kids have got. And that makes her feel good about herself. Um, so if we don't all work together, if one, if one of the links decides to have a tantrum, it, it is challenging and it's much harder. But generally it works. We're just like a well-oiled machine. We all support each other. For people looking in... This is your regular life and it's just as Sylvia you said you just you get up and you do and this is this is it you wouldn't you wouldn't ask for it for to have anyone that you love have a disability but this is your this is your life do you ever take can you ever take time out for yourselves to to just have a day where it's your day or do you find that um and and someone tell me if I'm being inappropriate do you find that it's always focusing around sort of the the challenges, if you like. It is for us. We, well, there isn't time to take time out for yourself. For Katie, her health changes from hour to hour um, and how she's feeling changes from, from hour to hour. We don't really have time to just go off and have, you know, a, a few hours or the afternoon to yourself. So it doesn't work. But then I've got four kids, so perhaps it's easier like for Neil, who's only got the one child at home at the minute. Uh, Sylvia, I don't know how many you've got. Yeah, I, I have the one and I have another one on a Monday. I have a another, uh, another added member to the family. We've just got through a guardianship. So, so yeah, there's there's another one. But my, I, I say, yeah, but it's, I suppose I would say is easier than having four. It definitely will be for Tegan. And I do, I do part-time work. So for me... Um, throughout Tegan's life, work has been my time, you know, so mine is really good childminder and support like that, more so not with my family, um, not because I don't want them to do it, because it's either me or somebody who was my childminder who professionally knew what Tegan needed, and then um, support from family would mean they'd come over to see us and be all together and we'd all chill together type of thing rather than her going off with anybody and I I would say I'm still a little bit protective now so even with her activities and Tegan is quite independent I am a little bit of a worrier underneath of things that she says she can and can't do because of the overworking her body which then makes the dystonia worse so you know, Sylvia how old is your daughter she's 19 Oh, I say my daughter's older too, but yeah. Yeah. So you're, you're saying something that I can really relate to. So I have to step back and let Katie do things that she really wants to do on a, on a good day. She'll be like, like last summer, she wanted to go cliff jumping. Now I'm yeah. telling you, my daughter's on her knees in pain, but she had a good day and she wanted to go cliff jumping. And mm. I just had to stand back. All I could do for her was make sure it was an organised activity with all the safety around her. And even they were like, well, I'm not really sure I want you to jump. But Kate was like, if you're letting my sister and you know if, if they're allowed to jump then I'm jumping yeah. too because that would be discrimination she would tell them <laughs> <laughs> it's totally true I mean like Tegan does her podcast and shares her life story and all that kind of stuff and what people see is all the gloss is what I say you know everything yeah, that is, that's what we say that, yeah they, they see everything that's lovely and you know see yeah. her trotting along on a horse and all the rest of it yeah they don't see that the bits when she's home and she's exhausted and she finds it difficult to get out of bed and all those kind of things so yeah it, there is that self-care be, behind the scenes self-care that 
people don't see in the outside world that constantly keeps you on that nervousness of you know not letting go totally and making sure that she has the right support that she needs to have I think this is the first time I've actually talked openly with other people and certainly other parents so there is one other parent I know um, that we I've been able to speak to but to speak openly to other people regarding Katie's condition because people don't understand Katie paints this picture if you look on her social media you'd think the world was wonderful in Katie's mm-hmm. world and yes because Katie likes to focus on the positives but that doesn't mean that there's a lot of negatives and, and the negatives are every day. But she will find a way of just trying to focus on the positives because that's so important for her mental health um, to, for her I to totally, know that during that yeah. day there was something she did that was fun. I totally agree. I think Tegan has this um, what I call smiley persona anyway. She's always got a smile on her face. Yeah. So everything's a positive even when it's a negative. Yeah. It's like, even, oh, even like dinner's <laughs> gone up in the air because her arms are in spasm and yeah. <laughs> If, if uh, she would just say, "Oh well, yeah. the dogs have got a second dinner." <laughs> <laughs> the physio used to laugh because I said, "Oh, she's in pain. She's in. She's in pain." And they said, "But she's laughing." I said, "But that is her way." Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. You know, she just go into a giggle, you know. And I said, "Don't be. You're you're taking it to a level now. That movement that that's going to be, you know, too painful." So it's just, when people's personas are that way, it's hard for others to gauge unless they know your child. I I wonder if um because your daughter sounds a lot like Katie she would certainly give off the persona that everything is wonderful and rosy in her world. Mm. I mean, she went for a blood test this morning and I remember saying to her as she was going in, Katie, don't go in there all skipping and dancing because they, they might not take your blood and do your blood yeah. test because they'll think you're fine. Well, that, that's, that's, <laughs> the, that's like I said. With the, you know, with they the... didn't see her on the floor last night, you know, and it's just like, <laughs> how do you get a balance? And, and Katie's just like, they can take me or leave me. <laughs> it's, it's exactly like I said, with the, you know, the PEP application. That's, that to me was like, as soon as the, the thing finished, I thought she's not going to get any help or support. She can't, you know, it's oh, I can physically see that you are disabled, but you are quite able, aren't you? And you can get around and you can listen. I'm like, oh, my word. You know, we find ridic- that adult social this is services, ridiculous. Adult, adult social services kind of give those responses to, um, you know, they'll talk to Katie and Katie's very capable of talking for herself. Yeah. Um, but her memory is extremely poor. So um, Katie can have a conversation with somebody and a couple of hours later, she would have forgotten what she was talking about. She's very easy to talk over as well. So um, if Katie's saying, I need help with such and such, and then they'll say, oh, but can you do it this way or that way? Oh, well, you can do it on your own now, can't you? You don't need any help. Yes. Um, And actually, just because she's managed a task once doesn't mean that she can manage that task again. Um, And and she may well have managed that task while she wasn't in spasm, but that's not to say she's going to manage that task while she's when she's in and spasm. she is she can't yeah. brush her teeth when she's in spasm let yeah. alone get herself dinner and sit herself down at the table and eat it but yeah I can't things like pip it must be so difficult for, to get them to see when your young person is actually giving off a very positive and why shouldn't they be very positive yes you know, that, that's what I say to Katie good for you girl why shouldn't you be and, and why should you have to you know sit down and it feels really demoralizing to sit down and say your child and you have to have a list your list is so long of all the things they can't do for themselves and why should you have to sit there and say that, especially in front of them, when they've worked so hard to do the smallest things? And I totally agree. I totally agree. Post, and that that's what makes me sad. That's what makes me cry when I have to sit there and think I've got to talk about all the negatives when actually all you want to do is celebrate all the positives. Yeah. Yeah. What's, you know, Tegan spoke to a couple of professionals a little while ago for a physio and it ended up with us going to um, Southney to the, the with the year two doctor doing a talk to let them know how difficult it is and how they the way that they approach parents and approach the um, children when we go into the hospitals and when you're an adult and you're transferred into adult services how that all impacts on you again you know um, and I feel like that that's the sort of training that should be incorporated into all of their um, teaching in year one two three four and onwards um, throughout their profession that they should have people in front of them who, who actually if they're going to be working and that's going to be their professionalism especially um that, that you know children's services and you know the medical professionals and social services all those people need to have us i feel to share stories um from so that they get a better understanding because it's just it's just not getting through as far as i'm concerned in a yeah. world that it should already be apparent in yeah, I mean, and there, I remember one time Katie went to see a doctor, her shoulder was fully dislocated. It'd gone into spasm, but it was locked. So it wasn't being thrashed in and out of its socket. It was just stuck solid dislocated. 
um, and, a, and a doctor come through and he was he was touching her shoulder. He went, oh, I can get three fingers inside your shoulder joint. Yeah, that's definitely fully dislocated. And then he wrote on the report, Katie was in no pain. But he wrote that she had a full dislocation, uh, you know, but then added Katie was in no pain because Katie wasn't crying. Yeah. Um, he, he couldn't understand. And I was like, what person, what doctor can seriously think that any person can have a full dislocation and not be in any pain? Because mm-hmm. she wasn't on it. She's used to living in yes. this type of pain. Like, that is her life. She, she's been living like this now for several years. And it's her normal. Um, for her, the, the worst of it is it's when, it's when it's been going on for hours and hours and hours. And then she can't cope anymore. And she can literally be crawling across the landing, getting from the bathroom to her bedroom. And if she moves a couple of centimetres, it makes her vomit again. So she can be stuck laying on the floor and she literally can't get to her own bed. Um, but because when she went to that doctor's surgery... Um, and they were like, oh, well, you know, I can get my fingers in your socket. It's fully desiccated. But because you're not crying, you're obviously fine. You can cope yeah. with the pain. The you have to show you have in to eventually. Pass. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> well, have some more diazepam. You'll be fine. <laughs> but as we all know, the, the experiential learning that you get by having to manage it is, is the best way to learn. Um, and of course, to be fair, lots of people haven't had those experiences um and then as sylvia said they're not it's not being they're not being educated it's not featuring in schools it's not even featuring in medical schools so um Ailish working at the nightingale there was um a middle-aged man with down syndrome who got covid pretty badly he was in the nightingale um Ailish saw other doctors interacting with him and said, look, I'm not being critical, but I grew up with a brother with Down syndrome, so it might be better if I just, you know, deal with Fred. Um, And she did, but as she said to me, that didn't make them bad. It just made her lucky that she'd had that experience growing up with, you know, her elder brother. How does Callum react when when people are a little bit wary around him um he's he's incredibly intuitive so um he'll work you out in the first 30 seconds yeah um i mean i'd, I'd say that it's like he's dancing he, he was blessed to do some things because the other things that he can't do are all you know he also thinks he can sing and he's the worst singer in the world um so he's got <laughs> he's got strengths and weaknesses but one of his strengths is his intuition so he, he knows within 30 seconds whether he likes you. He knows within 30 seconds whether he's going to respect you. And more worryingly, he knows within 30 seconds if he could take the mickey out of you and just basically have his own way. Um, so he, he, you know, if he engages with you, that's because he likes you. And if he doesn't or he feels you're standoffish or you don't really get him, then he just doesn't bother to engage. It'd be like, you're not there. He mm. just doesn't. He's not rude. He's a very polite young man, but he just won't engage, <laughs> which I think is quite a good default position, really. Well, I agree. Like, don't have anything nice to say. Don't say anything at all. There's that old no. adage, isn't there? It has some truth in it. Yeah. A good place that Katie um, was very lucky to be able to get a place at um, is a place called Pathways locally to us. Um, and it's a it's a locally run farm. And there's lots of people there with many different types of different, you know, different disabilities. Um, and they all work together to produce a goal. If, if the goal today is to move the pigs, um, feed the pigs, clean the pigs, you know, they all work together. Um, no one person is better than anyone else. They're a team, uh, and they all produce the outcome together, um, and that that's really boosted her confidence, um, and it's made her feel that she can do things and achieve things, and that's why she continued at college, because the support she got at the farm um, it just made her feel like she was a human being again. Um, she wasn't just Katie, the ex-swimmer that really wasn't mounting to anything and had no idea if she even had a future. She realised that actually she's a really friendly person. She's kind, but she's got so much empathy for other people. Um, she she especially likes working with people with Alzheimer's and dementia. Um, and I think that she kind of, even though it's a completely different disability, she kind of relates because of her lack of memory. Um, so when they ask her multiple times um, what her name is, she, she can't remember their names either. So she's completely comfortable <laughs> with that. Um, it's not a problem. <laughs> so, 
Uh, our, our young people will go far. They'll all find their own little niches and, and they'll fly. I think so. I think they're all very resilient because they put up with a lot more than what I would do, you know, um, in, in, if, if I was in their circumstance and was able to articulate myself in their skin. <laughs> you know? um, yeah, I just think the resilience is massive. Yeah. That's what we always say. We always say with Katie, she's a very resilient young woman. Mm. But they each have their, um, one of the things that I know from hearing your stories previously as well as today is they each seem to have this sort of, on some things, sort of almost laser focus. So with Callum, he likes dancing and Katie uh, and Tegan actually both ride horses. Um, and, and it's it's finding those things that really hold their attention and their passion because on days that are tougher than others, it's those things, those small things that people can get pleasure in. And that's true whether you are completely able-bodied or have a disability, but finding those things that get you through the day are really important. Yeah, yeah. That, that's that's why Katie has a, a social, that's why Katie's social media is so positive. Mm. Um, so when Katie's having a bad day, she can just sit and skip through all her good days. Um, or, you know, I did this this morning, I might not be well this afternoon, but that was fun. And because she does suffer with her memory it's really good for her because she will forget some of the good things she's done she there has been occasions where she says I don't think I'm going to be able to do anything what sort of job can I do I can't do. and I just say Katie let's have a look and, and we, you know we take lots of pictures we have photograph books um and having Facebook really helps her too because she keeps a little log and and it's really nice it's a good way for her to be reminded of all the good things that she can do uh, gives her some positivity Neil we you were say fresh. something that um, we, we always have to keep Callum in uptime. So you can, um, I learned this doing my MBA, you can have uptime and downtime. Downtime is when you're very stressed, you can't see the wood from the trees and you know life's you know pretty tricky. Uptime is when you decide to clear your head, go for a nice walk in the countryside, look at the shapes of the leaves and get the smell of the hedgerows that you would never ordinarily do. So um, we wouldn't send Callum to do that because he hates walking, but. Um, but uptime <laughs> up is what about what you were saying, Dana. It's about focusing him on things he enjoys doing, talking about things he did yesterday, talking about things that are upcoming. Um, yeah, I know it hurts right now, matey, but remember at 3.30 you have your, um, this is another subject, you have your cannabis oil. Um, <laughs> uh, and you know that the minute you have that drop on your tongue, within 10 minutes it all feels a lot better, yes. So it's all about uptime. It's all about because he, he will spiral very quickly when he's in pain, um, yeah. as I'm sure they all will. So yeah. it's trying to keep that uptime to the absolute maximum because that then helps his dystonia because he's less stressed and he's less tense. Mm. So, yeah, that, that's what we do. Sylvia, do you find, have, have you been told, that, um, and, and Neil, have you been told that your children need to pace? Have you, have you heard the whole pacing thing? Um, so if Katie wants to do something, I don't know, say she wanted to do something Saturday and it was Monday. So she would then have to pace so that she could do the activity on the Saturday. Um, and, and what we found with Katie is that pacing thing really doesn't work because dystonia doesn't work like that. It doesn't mm. say, well, I'll be a good girl on Saturday and I won't bother my Katie today because she's been really good for me all week. Dystonia will rear its ugly head whenever, you know, whenever you don't yeah. want it to. I've <laughs> so, never heard of it. I've never um, heard of it. Oh, it's the whole idea of Katie. She can tell she has she has to pace, and that will allow her to do the activity that she's been trying to do. Because Katie does a lot. She's very physical. She she likes to be. She bounces around, and she doesn't sit still for very long. She, if she sits still, she's in pain. So she tries not to sit around for very long. But the, the, the occupational therapy, and she's been to rehabilitation, and the whole thing has been based around pacing. Um, and I just wish that the occupational therapists and and the doctors that work with Katie could understand that. Pacing doesn't actually work for somebody with dystonia. You know, it won't stay away just because you've rested. You've rested all morning, so you know, so you can do an activity in the afternoon. That doesn't mean that you're not going to be in spasm in the afternoon. So the way Katie lives her life is, I'm not hurting right now, or, or actually, my pain yeah. is minimal, and I can manage my pain right now. It's never not hurting, but my pain is a manageable pain. I'm going to do something with it. I, I'm going to go out and I'm going to have some fun. Be it like you said, Neil, going out for a walk. She loves to walk around the trees and she loves to smell, especially it's been, when it's been raining. She will make the most of 
every bit of good time that she has rather than rest in preparation for the activity that yeah no Tegan needs to be like the same way Tegan needs to be active you know I feel like she needs to be active and that's when she's at at her best you know um is when she's moving and keeps moving and she's rested and um had a good night's sleep then that makes a difference as well because you know that her dystonia interferes with her sleep a lot of the time so sometimes that can be quite interruptive that helps but nobody could ever tell her I think the pace because it just wouldn't work it's just so unpredictable you know she could be walking up in the morning feel fine and two minutes later her right arm's attacking somebody exactly there's no time and you don't know when and when things are going to happen so I think that that concept is a little bit ignorant really yeah I'd agree and that's been a real challenge for us as a family so Katie really has tried the whole pacing thing she's you know she's we've had like timetables with pacing put into the timetable and during that pace time you're supposed to relax and calm and relax you know no no charging around no doing anything you just got to sit and relax read a book watch a dvd have some popcorn anything but being active and it doesn't work and she sees it as a waste of her good time (laughs) and i just wonder if it's because of their age these are youngsters these aren't adults as such they're not fully fledged grown-ups out in the world by themselves these are still young young adults young people all of them and pacing is boring for, for these people. You know, people without a disability wouldn't be told to pace, but they naturally expect our young people with a disability to actually really fully understand the whole concept of pacing yeah. and rest. <laughs> yeah. okay. That looks very different for whoever it is, isn't it? So some people like meditation and therefore yoga or something meditative would make you feel better. But if your happy place is being active, then actually how you would pace would look very different because the endorphins you get from being active and being happy would then help. Yes. I had a big smirk on my face when you said yoga. That was one of Tegan's worst ever trying activities. <laughs> Mine too. You despised it. With, you, know, you ask her about yoga, you see what the response you would get. It was hilarious. We did it together. I loved it. You know, I, I thought it was amazing. You know, we did it together, but... Trying to keep her in a posed position or lying <laughs> flat or whatever. She's like, this is agony. <laughs> Leave me alone. <laughs> it does work for some people, doesn't it? It's just, yeah. <laughs> it's what I'm yeah, you're quite right, Sylvia. Sure. Yeah, that's, that's how Katie is. <laughs> yeah. Well, Callum, the- Callum, would, Callum would be a natural because his, his muscle tone is so much lower because of his dial. Mm. He's hyper flexible. So, yeah. He- uh, he could do most of this stuff and not understand what the problem was. He, he he sits and watches the TV in the most remarkable zen-like positions and then <laughs> just by pushing up on his two ankles. It's like bizarre, but he doesn't know he's doing it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll send him to yoga. Maybe him and Tegan. <laughs> I wouldn't suggest that to her. I mean, you've all spoken incredibly eloquently about watching your children succeed in whatever that succeeding looked like. Obviously, there's the failures and when they're in pain and that's heartbreaking. How does it feel for you guys to to watch them start to live in this world? And and I think, Sylvia and Julie, you both mentioned sort of wrapping them up in cotton wool almost and having to take that step back. How For all three of you, how do you empower them to live their best life and also be okay with that and and be able to take that step back from them? I think for me, empowerment is around putting blocks in place of support so that you know that if there is any issue when you're not around, that they know where they can get their support from. You know, for me, for for Tegan, it was trying to grow as much independence as possible. You know, getting her driving was a thing that I wanted her to do from young and or oh, it might not happen and it has, you know, because um, she wanted to do it. I've done things like had friends' homes where they've gone away for a weekend and Tegan would do a, a stay, you know, do a house look after or something to see what bits she would really find difficult. You know, there was always somebody else there, but um, they were sort of in the background. And just to see how she would be independently and doing little bits and pieces where she has little snippets of experience in that around other people other than me you know so yeah. so that she can see what it's like to be away from the home um it's still hard you know like she knows I'm going to ring her four or five times for the day or 
<laughs> there's there's check-ins you know like you know make sure you check in and you know call me at this time and you know that sort of thing yeah it's just it's just having building blocks in place to make sure that the freedom grows as age grows and try and let go and tell myself you know it needs to happen so I have to keep reminding myself that I'm living in my skin and not Deegan's and she needs to be able to live her own life the best way that she can and to let to let that happen and I, I just have to keep reminding myself of that. Neil? Um, well, what, one of the things we discovered as Callum was going through his diagnosis was that he, he associated living, he had all these horrible events. We just moved house, uh, only down the road from where we were, but then that's when he got his dystonia and that's when he was diagnosed and when he was in so much pain. And so he had really bad associations with this house. He didn't like his new bedroom. He didn't like his new sitting room. I think, to be honest, if he if he'd not had the dystonia, everything would have been fine. But it, it just presented poor outcomes for him. So we were lucky enough to own a cottage literally next door. You go through a door in the garden hedge and you're into the cottage. So we asked him if he wanted his own house like his brother and sister have got. And he got very excited about that. So we, again, were blessed to be able to do it. We recruited um, a couple of carers, people, one of whom had worked with him before. And since that time, Callum's been living in his own house with his full-time care team. But it's literally, as I say, through a, a door in, in the hedge in the garden. But it was still horrific. I mean, Amanda did pretty well with it. I was in bits. You know, we'd looked after him for 31 years. He was always in our home. He was, I was always talking to him or asking what he was doing with his PlayStation or what's happening on Coronation Street. And, and even though he was only next door, I couldn't do that anymore. Mm. And I hated it. I was so unhappy. I mean, I, I just couldn't describe it, but I knew that it was right for him. And I knew that he was happier and that he felt more uh, autonomous and he felt more in control of his own life and it you know it, it, for him it's not like he's got a care team it's like he's got he's living with his mates and so I had to just suck all that up um, because I knew it was the right thing for him and and so it has turned out and now he's got four people in his care team we finally after eight months got some money from the council to help pay for it even though we have to pay the balance but as I say we're blessed to be able to do it and he is much much better off but to answer your question and to see him, if you like, go off into his great new world was just the hardest thing I've ever done. But the right thing. So just get on with it. Julie? Uh, well, uh, with Katie, she she does have an educational healthcare plan, um, which does help. There's lots of sort of building blocks put in place for Katie to to keep making steps forward to learn ways around her difficulties so that she you know can achieve her targets you, you, the children young know, I think children she's always going to be my child but she's not a child so targets will be put in place and there should be the stepping stones in that target to help her achieve that and then you just slowly chip away at it taking less away so she's getting less and less support and that really helps develop her independence at that, that makes her Feel like she's a really good positive learner and she's doing the right things and she she was really really happy she had a good annual review last year and she's even managed to get onto there's a program our local hospital do and it's for the students that are doing health and social care she is a health and social care student but she's considerably older than the other students they're most of them like 16 17 Katie's 22 and she really wanted to be a part of this program so that she could find out what all the job roles were because as I say she wants to work so she wanted to find out what all the different job roles were so she can try and find a job that's suitable for her, something she can do. And she didn't think she'd get on this programme. Uh, we had to write a letter. So Katie sat with me as I wrote her letter explaining why she should be given this opportunity. And she, she did get a place. And she was so excited. She felt accepted. Didn't matter that she was a little bit older than the other students. It kind of bothers her a little bit that she's older than the other students. But as I've said to her, you know, for other reasons, there are other students that are all different ages. It's not just because of the way you learn. It's differently to other people. You know, it's, there's many reasons why people are different ages. And she's accepted that. And, and now she's on this course and she's so excited to be on the course. But that has its own challenges because it's not part of her regular routine. 
So she, that's got to learn to become part of a regular routine. She's supposed to read her own emails and join links that, you know, and, and while she's been doing home learning with school, um, like routines, like the, all the students have been doing it, she seems to have grasped that really well because it's become part of her routine. This is an extra that's suddenly been added in that she desperately wanted to be a part of. But she can't remember what day it's on. She can't tell the time. So she can't even remember what time she's supposed to log on. So all that it really is is more work for me to do. But by me doing that stepping stone for her, putting that in place so that she can access that course um, and me sitting next to her, taking notes of everything that has to be done. because she, she can't hold a pen. So I'll sit and make notes. But they're our stepping stones. They're our blocks. That's not me taking over. That's me enabling and empowering her to be able to make her own choices. This is, this is a course she desperately wanted. So as long as the stepping stones and, and the support is put in place, Katie can do the same as everyone else. Yeah, I could talk to you guys for hours, but I have a feeling. Not if you wanted to stay away. Sorry, <laughs> Neil? Not if you wanted to stay away. <laughs> no, honestly, it's it's so lovely and heartwarming and sometimes heartbreaking to hear the stories because these stories are what gives other people courage and hope and you know what you want for the person that you're caring for regardless of if they have a disability but certainly when they have dystonia is that they will be able to live these amazing full lives and I think what we've got out of today is that all three of you are saying they absolutely can there are just it's a different path it's a different path they go down but they can absolutely live very full and wonderful lives and I'm going to ask each of you your children are a little bit older, so teens and above. What piece of advice, one piece, if you could give yourself before the diagnosis or as you got diagnosed, regardless of the age of the child, what piece of advice do you wish someone had given to you looking back now at the stages that you all are in this journey? Mine would definitely be trust, trust yourself, trust in your instincts. Okay. Neil? Yeah, without piggybacking that very appropriate comment, I think it's about you know your child better than anybody, including the medical professionals. You know, you and most good doctors say, listen, you know your child better than I do. And I think appreciating that and having that confidence is pretty crucial because otherwise you can end up in lots of blind alleys and waste a whole heap of time when the individual concerned is hurting a lot and that's not a good combo. I ditto both of you and I'd also say that any parent in front of any profession professional if you feel that they're not listening please do try and get heard because I feel that's where some of the battles are is that professionals will give you um a response that makes you feel like you're the one who's in the wrong some of the time because they're the ones with all the qualifications. So, so just please be, you know, on it with, you know, if you don't agree or or there's something you don't understand, make sure everything's cleared up and that you are clear about what you feel you see in your child, whether they whether their diagnosis you believe is wrong or not, share it, say it and mean it, and and try and get people to listen. Amazing. Guys, I cannot thank you enough on behalf of Dystonia UK, on behalf of all of the parents and carers that are out there that will be listening to this. Your advice is absolutely invaluable. And thank you so much for your time. And hopefully we'll do this all again on a different subject, because I think you guys have so much to give. Thank you once again to Sylvia, to Neil and to Julie for sharing their amazing stories. Everyone's experience with dystonia is unique and these stories really highlighted that. However, the common themes that really shone through for me are how important it is to listen to your loved ones and really work together to navigate this journey. We also talked about how critical it was to have the right team of people around you, from medical professionals to personal support systems such as family and really good friends. We have fantastic clinicians and medical professionals within the dystonia community, some of whose work was highlighted in this episode. However, all three parents agreed that more awareness needs to be raised so that the journey for people living with dystonia becomes a little easier. Dystonia UK exists to give hope and support to those living with dystonia, creating UK and worldwide awareness. 
and these podcasts help share people's experiences and encourage others to tell their stories, sometimes for the first time. You can catch our previous podcasts on all major podcasting platforms or find them on our website, dystonia.org.uk forward slash Dystonia Matters Podcast. You can also follow us on all our social media at Dystonia UK to be kept up to date with the latest news and stories. Please do like and share and comment on all the posts as that's one of the ways in which we help raise awareness. Thank you all for listening and I look forward to seeing you on the next episode.